You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Woods. I'm John and today we have two very special guests on the show. Hello, it is I, a special guest. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, folks, we are joined by Two Weeds alumni, Dylan Matthews and Dara Lind. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Was that that not the hello part? No, it was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) We are audio professionals over here. If you are a new listener who's joined us recently, Dylan and Dara go way back in the Weeds timeline and have both sat in the host chair at various points. Dylan is a senior correspondent here at Vox and also the lead writer of Vox's Future Perfect. And Dara is a senior fellow at the American Immigration Council who, after her time as a Vox reporter and Weeds co-host, has continued to grace us with her presence over the years. We wanted to get the crew back together one last time because Dara is officially leaving the Weeds universe for a new job. And as a farewell gift, we finally decided (laughs) to do an episode that she's been pitching basically for forever. And the reason she's been pitching it for so long is because, according to her, it's the most consequential piece of immigration policy you've likely never heard of. So, Dara, Dylan, welcome back to the Weeds. Thank you. So... Dara, how long have you been wanting to do this episode? (laughs) So I got to write an explainer when I was full-time at Vox on the 1996 Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, uh, known as IRERA or IRA-IRA, depending on how you feel about capitalizing the A. Uh, It is the dumbest acronym. It is very dumb. (laughs) I did this in 2016 because some of us at Vox, including both Dylan and I, saw Hillary Clinton running for president as an excuse to write content about Bill Clinton's presidency and mm. like to kind of do do some Vox Explains the, the 90s the content. The dream of the 90s was live in 2016, <laughs> Vox. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I knew already that there was kind of a macro narrative of like how we had gotten to where immigration was in 2016 that this bill played into, but learning about it through like reporting out that explainer and kind of subsequently, it was really amazing how many of the things that have come up in the last like several years have been things that got written into law by this bill and that like weren't even a big deal at the time. Basically anything you can identify as like a major fact about the immigration system that is broken, quote unquote, 
traces back to the debate over the bill and or like provisions in the bill itself, a lot of which weren't even really noticed or really had their consequences realized at the time. So like, first of all, the fact that we have a population of like 11 million or so people in the U.S. who don't have legal status, the majority of whom have been here, have been settled for a really long time, have community roots in the U.S. and have no path toward legal status. That's an artifact of one of the provisions in this bill that wildly restricted what had been a kind of backdoor legalization and imposed this requirement that if you had been unauthorized in the U.S., you would have to leave for several years if you wanted to come back. There's also the kind of intertwining of local law enforcement with federal immigration enforcement that we think of as a post-9-11 thing, but that actually started with a provision getting written into law in this bill. Mm. And we have this kind of issue of border security and asylum being kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Mm -hmm. Where a lot of people who have come into the U.S. without papers in the last 10 years have requested asylum, and that's kind of put a strain on the on the existing system. But that concern goes back to the debate over the 96 bill and, and the system that, that we have now was put in place then. So the funny thing is that only one of those, the border asylum thing, was actually seen as a major issue at the time. Mm. And so it's there are so many things that have kind of been time bombs that have exploded over the 27 years since IRA-IRA that looking back on it now, you see what was seen as a major bill and what is now an even bigger bill, but in totally different ways. Yeah, let's go back to 1996. What exactly did IRA-IRA do? So... The problem with any immigration bill, especially like any broad immigration bill, is that there are just so many areas of policy. So, you know, the other wild thing about 96 that you have to remember is three really big pieces of legislation get passed in 96. You have this, you have welfare reform, and you have EDPA, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, I believe. And some of those actually have overlapping things. Like between welfare reform and IRA-IRA, you have a real rightward shift in immigrants' eligibility for benefits, which basically means that you can't get them until you already have had a green card for several years. Between this and EDPA, you have a like real tightening of eligibility for citizenship and, on the flip side, vulnerability to deportation if you have certain criminal convictions. But then you also have stuff that is specific to IRA-IRA itself, things that make it harder to ever get legal status if you've ever been unauthorized in the U.S. You have the creation of this credible fear process, which, you know, is a theoretically expedited, but like still not a summary exclusion way to get asylum in the U.S. And you have this these little like time bomb things, right? The like, statement that local law enforcement has inherent authority to enforce immigration law. This provision in there that no one really remembers what it was supposed to do at the time, but then gets used in 2018 to create the Remain in Mexico or MPP mm -hmm. program, like a lot of little things like that. Um, but when the bill is passed, it's, it's generally understood as a asylum restriction, criminal bars, the welfare thing got a lot of play. And so some of the other kind of immigration specific stuff faded out of the limelight a little bit. So I know that it is difficult to uh, summarize just these decades of immigration history, but I'm sort of interested in the standard story about immigration we typically hear. I know people often think of like Ellis Island, like the 1900s. But can you walk us kind of how that immigration policy 
shifted and changed throughout the 20th century. Oh, sure. Is it heart seller time? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's heart seller time, baby. Um, so we actually, th- th- and this was the subject of a Past Weeds Time I Machine so, episode. Yeah. yeah, so if you're super interested, you can go back and listen to what we did on Heart Seller or the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. Um, There's also a but, great book on this I, I just wanted to plug by Jia Lin Yang at the New York Times yep. called a, a Mighty Irresistible Tide on yep. the history of that bill. But anyway. So the macro picture is that Ellis Island is really like the last gasp of a 19th century system in which there aren't very strong formal federal statutory restrictions. But instead, there's a lot of discretion that ends up getting used in predictably racist and eugenicist ways that results in in some people coming all the way to the U.S. and then getting told they can't get let in. That gets replaced in the early 1920s with the national quota system, which is explicitly designed to conform to the ethnic balance of the 1890 census so that America didn't get too many Southern and Eastern Europeans. And that system is what the 1965 Act, which is the last major overhaul of the legal immigration system we've had. So two big effects of that are, A, it really opens up America to Asian and African immigrants. B, for the first time, it imposes restrictions on legal immigration from the Western Hemisphere. And so the second half of the 20th century, in a lot of ways, is trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that we have this really long and like complicated in a terrain sense land border through which it now actually matters a whole lot more whether people are crossing. So in 1986, this problem they try to address with IRCA, the Reagan amnesty, which gives the opportunity to apply for legal status for people who are already here, makes it illegal to work in the United States without work authorization, in theory, you know, creates restrictions on employers, that kind of thing, and kind of building up from 86 to 96, the beginning of the kind of border militarization, Mm -hmm. right? The hiring of large numbers of border agents, the building of physical barriers, that kind of thing is kind of coming up through the 90s. But you still kind of have this sense that things are out of balance because you have an unauthorized population, which is like a policy failure on some level, right? And this increasing attention to Middle Eastern terrorism with a couple of like high-profile cases of people who had applied for asylum and then come into the U.S. and had then been arrested for for like violent crimes, a sense that asylum is creating a get-out-of-jail-free card for anyone who wants to come to the U.S. to do people harm. So by the time we get to 96, what's the, the undocumented population like? You had the Reagan amnesty in 1986, so you had a large swath of people who who had this opportunity to legalize. Is it just people who came in the subsequent 10 years, or are there people like left out of the Reagan amnesty? So that is a good question. We, I wish we had, like, I really wish that there had been. I know that people tried to do really good data collection on yeah. the legalized was population. Just, was there just people? It's just like just so. It, but it is. It's, it's hard to get that data. What? Yeah. Like, I think our understanding is that there was decent pickup, not like ideal pickup, but decent pickup among eligible people. There is, of course, the problem of like people who had already come in the time between the law was signed, you know, like, and they do continue coming because the likelihood of apprehension compared to today is still very low. The potential penalties compared to today are still pretty low. And so what you have is the beginning of a shift that really becomes very clear in the early 2000s, but that is happening during this time and that Ira Ira almost certainly kind of accelerated and locked into place, but that was probably happening before that, which is a shift from the unauthorized population being mostly single men of working age 
or men of working age coming without their families who would then kind of return, you know, and engage in, in what we call circular migration because it's just a way to get some money and then go back to people settling in the U.S., more women coming, more, you know, families coming, and a more settled population. All of those trends together pointing to in the years after this bill passes, and certainly there's a correlation here, and we can talk about the causation in a bit, what had been a fairly, you know, transient population becoming a long-settled unauthorized Mm -hmm. population. Mm -hmm. So I know now, especially, but even in 1996, we were very far away from this Ellis Island, give us your poor sort of immigration policy. And I want to get into 1996 and the political and cultural landscape. So, Dylan, what was going on back then? Bill Clinton was in the White House. We were all doing right. the Macarena. Like, what what was happening? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's important, especially as we, we go through the myriad failures of this bill, to just remember how radically to the right of today's political atmosphere things were then. Um, so we're two years out from the 94 midterms. The 94 midterms were, like, catastrophic for Clinton in a way that no subsequent midterms had been. Democrats had had the House for 40 years uninterrupted and close to 60 if you uh, exclude like a two-year period in the 50s. That got wiped out. It was like an apocalypse shift in the way that the Congress works. And so Clinton had to deal with a hostile Congress that he never thought that he was going to have to deal with because no previous president had had to deal with it. Also, he came after 12 years of Republican presidents, each of whom won in a landslide. Like, Reagan and Bush did not win by small margins. They, like, kicked the shit out of Carter, Mondale, and Dukakis. <laughs> and Clinton only won because it was a three-way race, and he had a sort of bare plurality. He got something like 42 43% of the vote because Ross Perot got 20, and did so by running, like, hard to the right relative to the rest of the, the Democratic field. The idea that a Democrat would sign this can seem baffling now, but he's existing in an ecosystem where there was a very real feeling among Democrats that if you don't move rightward on stuff like immigration, you're never going to win an election again. Mm-hmm. And I think that fear is amplified after 94 because it suggests that like the 92 gains were very fragile. <laughs> they could go away very, very fast. I kind of want to dig into that time period and immigration specifically What were lawmakers' concerns regarding immigration at the time? Like, what were the big, you know, I mean, now people are freaking out about migrants and fentanyl and all these things. What what is the 1996 version of that? So there are a few things. There's definitely a concern about, like, we're still in a post Willie Horton kind of media world, right? Mm, Where like one really high profile. Super duper racist ad they Right, exactly. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. But it's but it's kind of more generally the the principle that you can have an entire policy knocked out because one bad case creates the opportunity to kick you over the policy. And so there is some concern about that that becomes relevant, especially when we're talking about asylum stuff um, because of the, you know, attack on the World Trade Center in 1993, a couple of other cases. There's also this rise in the Republican Party. Obviously, like both parties are a little bit cross-pressured on immigration. But what you have at this point in the the Republican Party is 
a wave of kind of entrepreneurship among Republicans like Pete Wilson in California, who are making their reputation as immigration hawks, and specifically on the idea that immigrants and specifically unauthorized immigrants shouldn't be eligible for social services. And that's not just defined as like cash benefits. It's defined as public schools. The idea that unauthorized immigrant kids had a right to be in public school was pretty like the Supreme Court had only established that, I think, in 1982. Mm. You know, obviously, there's nothing stopping Congress from passing a, a bill explicitly saying that that's not OK. So, you know, Pete Wilson like makes his reputation on a proposition in California that severely restricts public benefits for unauthorized immigrants. And so that is kind of opening up as a new kind of terrain of battle where Republicans can use their traditional concerns about welfare to also hit Democrats mm. on this on. And it's it's useful that it's California here because this is at a time when the unauthorized population isn't in a lot of the country. Right. But California is a much more diverse place than much of the rest of the country. And so that's where kind of the fear of change can be activated very readily. It is very interesting to me. I don't know. I think of the 90s was just, I don't know, it was a different time. And I think of just so many of the policies there, like the attitudes around welfare, attitudes around so many things, just this idea of like, we can't have people taking advantage of these things. Like people have, the brown and black people need to earn it because they're lazy, right? Like where, it shaped so much of the policy at the time, it seems like. Well, and California was also just very different. Like this is something I've been reading about recently for for some other projects, but we think of California as this arch-liberal state now, and it really wasn't. I mean, you had Reagan famously, but Wilson succeeded another conservative Republican governor. And a huge part of the dynamic of the state was that it was a defense state. Um, you had huge naval installations and contractor businesses in Southern California. And when a lot of that business shut down in the early 90s because the Cold War was ending, you had a kind of localized recession in Southern California that like both fed into kind of reactionary norms and was also like eventually led to those businesses shutting down and the whole state shifting leftward because you didn't have this kind of like conservative bulwark in Orange County in San Diego. I was about to say you're Orange County Republicans. Right, right. And, and there's some of them who are still there, but like it's not sort of the defense heavyweight that it was then. And I think that's like really profoundly shaped the the state in in kind of surprising ways. But but I think help, helps account for why you have people like Pete Wilson, why you have enough Republicans paying for and voting for measures like Prop 187, which was the um, ballot initiative that Dara mentioned. I want to talk about the legislative history of IRA IRA a little bit. It was a very complicated process. Uh, why? Well, it's, it's wild. Congress used to do this thing called legislate, where at the beginning of a Congress, bills would get drafted <laughs> And then they'd get negotiated openly. And I'm familiar I, I hear with this process. committees are sometimes involved. Yes, I don't know committees her. were involved, including conference committees. There would be different versions of a bill that would go through the House and Senate like independently. And then they would be reconciled at the end of the process rather than getting ping-ponged back and forth. Sounds like fan fiction to me. <laughs> um, so that, that said, because this is kind of in important ways, as Dylan mentioned, kind of alluded to earlier, the first like modern opposition Congress— Republicans come into office with, like, a slate of things they want to do, but also are aware that, like, they have no need to play by rules of comedy, especially in the House. And also in the House, because they hadn't had control of it for so long, you have some decently experienced Republican legislators who have cared about this issue for a long time, like Lamar Smith of Texas and Elton Gallagher of California, who have never had the chance to really, like, write legislation. 
And so they really take the bull by the horns. There had been like concerns both in Congress and the executive branch about asylum in particular, because asylum policy of the United States at the time was such that if you could apply for asylum and get a work permit and it was taking so long to adjudicate asylum claims that you would just have people like applying, working for a couple of years and then getting the asylum denial. And because that incentivizes more people applying, the backlog was just getting worse. And the Clinton administration had taken some like regulatory moves to change that. But, you know, it wasn't necessarily enough to kind of reduce the political pressure. But Smith and Gallagher, especially Smith, kind of take that and write a bill that is you know, we're going to have a whole title cutting legal immigration across the board, including business immigration. We're going to really, like, tighten these criminal bars. We're going to ban immigrant children from public schools. Like, they really take a maximalist approach. And then the Senate and then the House kind of negotiating process becomes a triage concern for advocates and Democrats who are a little bit back-footed on, like, how do we fight all of this at once? At a fairly early point, Smith realizes he can't fight a two-front war and so agrees to cut the business immigration stuff mm. and, like out, out of the bill. And ultimately, some of the other legal immigration cuts kind of get like shunted as well. Because it, w- it would have been, like, had this bill passed as initially written, it would have been wildly restrictive on legal immigration from 1996 levels. But on some of the other stuff, there isn't a very well-organized immigrant rights movement. There are basically a bunch of asylum lawyers. There's, you know, a little bit cross-pressuring among Democrats who feel the need to say that they're not supportive of illegal immigration per se, right? And there are a lot of moving parts. And so a lot of the attention ends up focusing on what's called the Gallagher Amendment, the provision on unauthorized immigrant children in public schools. That takes a lot of oxygen, ultimately becomes the subject of a veto threat from the Clinton administration, and then gets stripped. And like without that veto threat, there's then a whole, okay, is this bill bad enough that we think we can keep Bill Clinton from signing it? But the other fun thing that happens in terms of like Republicans not needing the rules of comedy is Democrats show up for the conference committee, the final committee before it hits the House floor in summer of 96, to find that the bill has been substantially rewritten to the right from where it had been prior to that. Mm. And it's just like sitting on their desks and they're like, OK, so now you have to vote for this. Um, and so there's this, this actually hilarious kind of congressional record day where Javier Becerra, who's now Secretary of Health and Human Services, he and every other Democrat are like, well, this is a crappy move. So there was kind of a, a certain extent to which Republicans, at least some Republicans, were both well-informed and playing hardball, and very few Democrats were both of those things. All right, up next, we'll dig even deeper into Ira Ira. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. I'm here with Dara Lynn and Dylan Matthews doing a little uh, Weeds time machine about Ira Ira and immigration. So Dara, we did a brief summary earlier, but now I really want to get into the nitty gritty of this policy. Can you walk us through some specific areas of the bill and how they differed from the existing uh, laws at the time? Let's kind of take this in what this looks like if you're in various positions. Okay, if you're currently in the U.S. and unauthorized when this bill is enacted, you go from having a not easy, but like decently predictable way to ultimately get legal status. It's called cancellation of removal. It was basically if you'd been here for 10 years and you could demonstrate that it would be a hardship for you to go back to the country you hadn't lived in for 10 years, then a judge could give you a path to like permanent legal status. And that gets changed in a couple of ways. First, there's a numerical cap put on it. Second, the hardship standard gets raised. And third, it gets changed to, it can't be a hardship to you. It has to be a hardship to a U.S. citizen. Oh, okay. So usually that ends up being like a spouse or a child. But because the hardship standard is also raised, merely, well, we would have to move from the place where my child has lived their entire life does not count. The other kind of major reason we don't talk about about why the unauthorized population prior to this was like more transient is because if you were settled in the United States, ultimately you weren't going to be unauthorized. Mm. And so that's one of those things where it wasn't something that a ton of people looked at at the time. But in retrospect, if you look at how many people here now would have qualified for like pre-IRA-IRA cancellation, it really does have a massive effect. The other thing, as I kind of alluded to earlier, is if you are eligible for legal status somehow, for example, if you marry a U.S. citizen, you have to leave the U.S., wait a certain amount of time, and then apply to get back in, depending on how long you'd been unauthorized in the country. In some cases, it's a permanent bar. Like, you will never be able to get legal. There's also a slightly elevated risk that you will get caught and deported because of this inherent authority provision. Because of that, there is a slightly bigger kind of attention being put to interior enforcement in the U.S. If you're coming to the U.S. and you don't have papers as an asylum seeker, this is actually a huge change. And, you know, at this time, like, we don't have extremely sophisticated international databases where airlines can check legal status. So, like, it's not unheard of for someone to come to the U.S. and not have legal status here via, like, JFK, right? And so it had previously been the case that anybody had a right to an interview with an then INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service officer, to demonstrate if they were eligible for asylum in the U.S. And if that claim was denied, they got to go before a judge. After this bill gets passed, you have this this thing called expedited removal, which means if you are caught coming in or you're caught within a certain amount of time of entering, you can be deported without a judicial hearing. And for asylum seekers, that means you get a 
if you claim a fear of returning to your home country, you get an interview with an asylum officer that isn't a full interview. It's a screening interview. And if they find you have a credible fear of deportation, then you proceed to going in front of a judge. It creates a population of people who are going to be able to get deported very quickly. And the expedited removal provision is something else that like doesn't really get used a ton at the time, but will get used more later on. If you're a legal immigrant in the U.S., then it plus the welfare reform stuff mean that your eligibility for public benefits, for federal public benefits, has basically been cut to nil, unless you're a refugee or an asi- or someone who's been granted asylum or you know a humanitarian visa, like a, a visa for domestic violence survivors, that, that kind of thing. That doesn't affect your children's enrollment in public school, but you can kind of understand from, like, if you remember the debates over the public charge regulation during the Trump era, like, it can be a little bit hard to communicate to people, well, these benefits are off limits, but these benefits are okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um. So there's definitely some of that. The other thing is that it's now much harder to get citizenship or to retain legal status if you have contact with the criminal justice system. There are lots of legal terms of art that are, some, some of which are kind of pre-existing in immigration law, but like now get more important because they're expanded. The concept of the aggravated felony, which is not a term that exists in actual criminal law, but exists in immigration law and has since been the subject of like enormous amounts of litigation. Like, okay, does it have to be a felony to count as an aggravated felony? Turn out, nope. Like, um, right. So there are, there are kind of all of these like expanded, but not very well-defined bars to citizenship that mean that if the government decides to deny your application for citizenship and deport and try to deport you instead or like strip your green card or that kind of thing, you're going to end up in a pretty lengthy judicial process where you may or may not be able to persuade a judge that it doesn't matter that you had a long ago drug conviction. And obviously, given like where this is coming from in the context of like policing in the 1990s, what that ends up meaning is that to this day, you have a lot of black and brown longtime immigrants who are in the system because of like ages ago convictions that might happen today, but probably wouldn't because they were based in in policies that like have been abandoned as too aggressive and too draconian today. Um, but because they still have that stuff on their record, it's still a problem. A lot of the times when I think of 1990s, especially uh, criminal justice policy, I think draconian is a very good word to use. I mean, policies were so punitive back then. I'm thinking of the 1994 crime bill. I'm, I'm thinking of Ira Ira. What is it about the 1990s that punishment was just such a major part of policy? One thing to keep in mind is that there genuinely was a real surge in crime in the 70s and 80s. And you can't have that happen and not have a, a, a kind of reaction of some kind. It doesn't have to be a punitive reaction. I think the fact that the reaction was punitive is is based on some other things. I mean, this is also in the immediate aftermath of the crack epidemic, uh, which I think contributed to that, but it also was sort of played up a lot as a scare tactic um, and turned cocaine from like a rich white person drug to a scary poor black person drug mm-hmm. in ways that had implications for how uh, how hard it was cracked down on. But I think a lot of it was just the incentives that political actors faced. Dara mentioned Willie Horton earlier, who was both an ad, but was also a real person. That was really damaging. And and I think a takeaway, as, as Dara was saying from that, was people don't want to be responsible for the one guy who benefits from your policy and then goes on to hurt people. That anything that could be 
twisted to make you responsible for not having been tough enough on someone who goes on to do something heinous, even if that is a sort of the one in 10,000 person from that policy, that becomes really dangerous for Democrats. So yeah, that's that's kind of the context we're in. With regard to immigration in particular, I think this gets into some interesting political and policy dynamics, because for one thing, this bill does a lot to create what some scholars and activists call immigration, right? Like the intertwining of these two systems so that it's both immigration itself being criminalized and the criminal system getting used for immigration enforcement. That said, it's not fully a criminal system yet. Like being unauthorized in the United States is not a crime. Entering the United States without authorization is a crime. And that distinction ends up like being super relevant at a point when a lot of people end up being visa overstays, which is what we have, you know, in terms of the long-settled unauthorized population now. And so there's this really weird political dynamic where, like, in theory, talking about stiffening criminal penalties for immigration or, like, stepping up deportations of people who don't have criminal records or treating unauthorized immigrants more harshly, not giving them work permits, like, Politically, that can very easily reduce for a lot of people down to, well, they're criminals. And it's more complicated than that. But saying it's more complicated than that is hard to do in a like political mm-hmm. context. And the other side of this is that because immigration is not fully criminal, there's no right to counsel. Deportation is not a criminal penalty. There's ongoing litigation in the Supreme Court about whether you can be detained without a bond hearing for like years and years and years and years and years because it's not, you know, like it's just it's governed by different rules. There are a lot of things about the immigration system that are, in fact, as severe or more severe than criminal penalties. But because it's not it's technically a civil violation, not a criminal violation, you don't have those protections. Mm. And at the time, it's hard to see that because not a ton of people are getting arrested and deported. And after 1996, as enforcement steps up, both at the border and in the interior, it becomes increasingly clear that the cliche about immigration courts is that it's death penalty cases in traffic court. Mm -hmm. And that's really at the heart of this mismatch between the consequences of the system and the kind of relative safeguards that get put into the criminal side of the criminal justice system versus civil litigation. So we've dug into this sort of um, criminal justice aspect of IRA-IRA, but I want to dig into more of the social services too. Dylan, another part of the rhetoric we heard at the time, and honestly that we hear now, is this idea of people who are unauthorized to live in the country receiving benefits and social services, just sort of like this idea of like, they're taking our stuff, what's happening? Can Can you talk about that a little bit? One piece of the political context in 96 is that another major legislative push happening is for welfare reform. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that Republicans in Congress wanted, but that, that Clinton personally also really wanted. He um, promised during the primary in 1991 to end welfare as we know it. And there was sort of a bipartisan consensus that uh, aid to families with dependent children wasn't working. So Clinton brings in this team, this guy, David Elwood, who has this sort of very ambitious plan to remake it as a job support program and fund a lot of uh, government-provided jobs and childcare and whatever. And it quickly becomes clear that there isn't going to be the money for any of that. And then they lose the House um, and the Senate. And it becomes clear that Republicans won't vote for anything like that. So the Welfare Reform Act is is sort of being uh, sussed out around this time, as with 
IRA, IRA, there are some things that are being proposed that don't make it in, uh, the biggest being block granting food stamps that a lot of people wanted to not just sort of return cash welfare to the states, but to return food stamps, which would like totally remake the, the federal safety net and, and get rid of sort of one of the few programs that helps people who don't have any earnings. And so they were sort of having debates about whether that was going to happen and how far they were going to go. Um, but one axis of conflict in writing that bill was sort of how does it deal with immigrants? And this was subject to all the same pressures that Dara has been describing in, in the immigration-specific legislative context. And it culminates in a bunch of provisions stripping access to, to SNAP and to Medicaid, which are, for these purposes, like the two most important means-tested safety net programs from a large chunk of legal immigrants. And sort of underlining legal there, I think, is important that it's uh, it has always been the case that if you are an unauthorized immigrant, you can't get these programs. Yeah. Um, there has never been a majority in Congress for you walk over the border and we hand you a, a Medicaid card. But these are people who are lawfully here, some of whom had green cards, many of whom were married to or had family members who were U.S. citizens who are suddenly ineligible. And I think much as, as Dara is describing a lot of IRA-IRA, this flew kind of under the radar. I think a lot of people were focused on what happens to food stamps generally, what happens to Medicaid, can we get more money for something like childcare if we're going to force people to work to get cash welfare. Those were sort of more what people were arguing about and, and what was being sort of bandied about in the, the Clinton administration as he considered whether to sign or veto it. But then also there were these immigration provisions and those proved to be very important as well. Up next, we look at immigration policy after IRA-IRA. Dara, I want to get into um, something else that changed immigration policy, and that's 9-11. How did that change the country's feelings about immigration, and how did it change our policies? So I think there's this assumption that I think it's partly true, but I also think it it's kind of helped to um, obscure the legacy of Ira Ira some, because there's this assumption that, like, 9-11 was a real turning point toward a restrictive immigration policy. Mm-hmm. And on a very, very sophisticated level, that's probably true. Like, the DREAM Act was first introduced in, in summer of 2001. There was kind of a building understanding that there was a cohort of people who were growing up unauthorized in the U.S. There was some realization that the criminal bars for illegal immigrants were um, once those started getting implemented, even some of the Republicans who had supported them were like, whoa, 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 this seems a little harsh, even for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all gets arrested and kind of shunted aside by 9-11. The most important thing from a policy perspective is that the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, gets broken up and reconstituted as three separate agencies, two of which are responsible only for enforcement. So instead of having just one budget line, you had three budget lines and making it all the easier to just zero out the benefits one. And that's, you know, USCIS remains a fee-funded agency, whereas the two enforcement agencies Congress has been happy to, like, give more and more money to. The fact that it's two enforcement agencies rather than one is also very relevant because that means that for the first time, you have a whole agency Mm. that is 
in responsible for enforcing the immigration and customs in the interior of the United States. And that opens the door to turn this inherent authority provision in IRA-IRA into a series of programs that explicitly authorize local law enforcement to coordinate with this growing interior enforcement body to, like, turn immigrants over, creating something of a, like, jail-to-deportation pipeline through the late Bush and Obama administrations in particular. So bureaucratically, absolutely huge deal. You know, deportations are rising through the 90s, but we don't have anything close to the scale that we get, you know, by the end of the Bush administration. And a lot of that is because of the bureaucratic reorganization and the kind of empowering of enforcement within DHS. But legislatively speaking, 9-11 does nothing. There's a huge political concern, like refugee resettlement is paused. There's definitely a turn towards xenophobia, specifically against Middle Eastern and like people perceived as Middle Eastern or Muslim. But what we see in the changes to immigration policy post 9-11 are something of a political shift, but really the bureaucratic shift allowing a lot of things in IRA-IRA that had kind of been dormant to like then become you know, potentially viable, which ultimately kind of reaches its apex in this Remain in Mexico thing, which like when they were talking about it in 2018, I and every other immigration reporter who was working on this was just going around to the people who had been around in the 90s. Like the head of the INS when Ira Ira was passed is, you know, still like is Doris Meisner, who's like still in a prominent role as a think tanker. And she was like, I don't remember what this was about. Like wow. this was not we were like it was Maybe it was it was about like courts, ports of entry, like no one is really sure, but it got turned into because of the way it was written and because no one really knew what it had been about. It got turned into a a valve for we're going to take tens of thousands of people and force them to stay in Mexico while they eventually get asylum hearings scheduled in the U.S. We're almost 30 years out from the passage of this bill, and I'm. I'm curious how our current political environment is different from 1996. We, we've touched on this, but, you know, we're less punitive in a lot of ways, but people are still very hawkish, especially when it comes to the border. I think of Speaker McCarthy recently did a trip with the House freshmen down to the border. So how have things changed and how is it similar? We've circled back to a couple of really important similarities, one of which is that the border has eaten the immigration debate. Mm. And like, that doesn't mean that other problems are solved, right? Like, no one for whom there was a legalization push 10 years ago, five years ago, et cetera, has gotten legalized with the exception of a few thousand Liberians who were legalized under the Trump administration. And now we have this much more settled, much larger than it was in 1996 population. And as I kind of alluded to, but want to like spell out, demographers have identified this as being a kettling effect where like where the passage of more punitive penalties, more likelihood of enforcement convinces people to stay where they are rather than cross back and forth and mm -hmm. risk getting apprehended. And so and and so creates a settled population out of a transient one. And now we have the effects of that. And, you know, that's the one thing that like you can't create a pathway to citizenship without Congress. And so even subsequent Democratic administrations, while they've tried to protect people from deportation, give them work permits, et cetera, can't bridge that gap. The other consequence of the border eating the debate is it is possible that in the next couple of years, we are going to see the system that got set up in 1996 that was the compromise, you know, instead of essentially killing asylum entirely, this credible fear screening process, we may be seeing that 
eliminated or restricted so much that it is essentially eliminated, Mm. Um, whether that's, you know, legislative, whether that's because of Biden administration proposals that they have not actually released yet, but have said they're going to release that may have been released once this comes out um, that would ban people from asylum if they had crossed through another country in order to get to the U.S. Jake Hugh here. Dara was right. Last week on February 21st, the Biden administration announced a new rule that would make migrants ineligible for asylum if they pass through another country without seeking asylum there first. Okay, back to Dara. But the concern there is that it's an enforcement question versus kind of a basic humanitarian question of like, at what point are you raising the bar so high that in practice, no one with a legitimate humanitarian claim is going to be able to leap over it? And I think in that regard, it is absolutely possible that like, the, that border security is going to swallow asylum whole. Yeah, it's interesting to me that it's asylum that's sort of the thing. Like, of all the types of immigration to take place, asylum, like, it's it's people running from these awful situations, and yet this seems to be the sticking point for a lot of this policy. The problem here is that because the border isn't a force field, and therefore it's possible to set foot in, in the U.S. without having legal status, like— You can apprehend as many people as you want, but you can't immediately deport all of them because some of them will claim asylum. And so asylum is the one absolute thing written into U.S. law where, like, yes, on the one hand, you have committed the federal misdemeanor of illegal entry by setting foot in the U.S. without papers, but it's also fully 100 percent legal for you to be here as long as you are an asylum Mm -hmm. seeker. And it's it's like really it's this it's this weird quantum state that's really hard for people to process. And so that, A, does incentivize people requesting asylum whether or not they know what it means. And that's not to say that they don't have good cases. It's just to say that asylum law is extremely complicated. And B, creates this ongoing suspicion that if you really did want to come into the United States for malign purposes, you would do so by claiming asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of does make a certain amount of sense to me. Certainly the the trends over the last decade have been like, we really are seeing just many, many more people uh, seeking these fear screening interviews than we did under the Bush or Obama administrations. And like, you know, people respond to incentives. Smugglers train people to like do whatever they think is is going to most successfully get them into the United States. All that is true. The problem with that is that the fact that they're responding to incentives doesn't mean that they don't also have legitimate humanitarian like, you know, would easily fit under any asi- under like any legal rubric asylum claims. And so merely saying, well, too many people are doing it and therefore we're closing the door to all of them doesn't get rid of this like pesky little humanitarian demand. I want to look ahead to the future of immigration policy in the country. A, right now, a policy that's top of mind for a lot of people when it comes to immigration is Title 42. It's a policy that the Trump administration implemented around the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic that turns away migrants at the border. It's it's still in effect, and it has been for Biden's entire presidency, but it, it's slated to end soon. What what can we expect next? <laughs> um, so the other reason that it's a lot of fun to talk about when Congress passed immigration legislation isn't just that Congress doesn't pass bills anymore, <laughs> but also that like it's wild to think about a time when immigration policy wasn't being driven by the federal courts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like Title 42 is from the Public Health Service Act of 1944. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I didn't see that one coming. No, 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 no. That was that was definitely another like whoever control F'd the entire U.S. code 
<laughs> like to find that provision. I'm I mean, honestly, I admire the research skills. Um, but yeah, the current state of it is that the Biden administration, after not wanting to end it for a while, tried to end it, got sued by a bunch of red states. Federal courts said you can't end Title 42 because you still have this other emergency, even though those are legally distinct things. So it makes it really difficult to predict what's going to happen. It makes it really difficult to set up any successor policies. And what we end up having is this world where, like, no one really knows which policies are in effect at any given time. There are multiple policies. What you're actually subject to is is a little bit as it has been. And like, you know, this is this is a shout out to everybody who's super sick of me saying this. It's down to the people at Border Patrol who are doing apprehensions or like their supervisors or their supervisors. It's there are multiple things in effect at once. And that means that any given person who comes across won't know what policy they're subject to until they've come over. All right, Darlin, Dylan Matthews, thank you so much for joining me on The Weeds and for like making The Weeds awesome in the first place. It is a joy and a pleasure. And uh, thank you for letting us come back as weird old alums who are still hanging around the high school. The, the funny thing is though, like the, the joke is that you go back to your elementary school and you're like, wow, things are so much smaller. And they literally have changed the table in the podcast studio. So it's smaller. And I'm like, this is this is awfully literal for this metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a, a Matt Damon downsizing situation, but I'm <laughs> I'm glad you're thriving, JQ. <laughs> That's all for us today. Thank you to Dylan Matthews and Dara Lind for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. A special thank you to Kim Eggleston for fact checking it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall, and I'm your host, Jonquilin Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Dara or Dara? Don't know, don't care, don't notice. I know. Which, like, genuinely, whatever is more comfortable for you, just roll with it. Okay. It's like how light can be a particle or a wave. That's that's actually (laughs) really correct. Entirely correct. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.